Well, hello, this is uh, Mike Van Meter, and this is I am the host of the Recovery is Possible podcast, and thank you for joining me. And, you know, visit us on our Facebook page. We'd really like to have you there, and this podcast exists to educate, educate people about addiction, address the stigma associated with addiction and other issues, and help people really just get well. And that's what our our goal is all about. And as you know, this episode is sponsored by FHE Health, a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in treatment for first responders needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. Take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. And so today we have a special guest and I'm really excited about it. And this is a, we're going to be talking with Michael Segrew and he is an Air Force veteran. He went into the Air Force in 1998 and was separated as a captain in 2004. So Mike's a national speaker, as I said, a, a veteran from the Air Force and a retired police sergeant. We're going to be talking about that. So he was medically retired in 2018. We'll talk about that from the Walnut Creek Police Department. And currently he he works as a peer volunteer at the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat, and he's also an ambassador for Save a Warrior. So Mike is a dedicated advocate for awareness, prevention, education, and training on post-traumatic stress injury and first responder suicide prevent- prevention. So Mike continues to speak at law enforcement agencies all over the United States, and he just finished a book about a week ago, and uh, it's going to be coming out pretty soon. I'm sure Mike's going to be talking about that. And it was co-written with Dr. Shauna Springer, who's a PhD psychologist. And it's about his life story and um, the the different challenges that he has uh, experienced. And then Dr. Shauna Springer also evaluates uh, many of the statements that Mike makes in the book. And it's going to be called, or is called, Relentless Courage, uh, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. And you know what? Check him out. He's got his bio on LinkedIn. And Mike will also talk about the various social media platforms that he's on, but we're very excited to have him on. So Mike, thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Sorry about that long intro, but hey, go ahead. Feel free to cover anything that I left out or didn't get right or anything that you want to add. You know, I think you've covered the important stuff. Um, I just have a total of almost 21 years in law enforcement between the military and the civilian side. And it's something I've wanted to do since I was a young child. Uh, My stepfather who raised me was actually a police lieutenant here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so for me, law enforcement was a calling. It wasn't just simply a job, but it was something that I felt compelled and called to do. And I look back now and it it was the best years and some of the worst years of my life. Yeah. Well, walk us through some of that because, I mean, obviously you got to the point to where you're, you're doing the work that you're doing now and the book that you wrote. Uh, talk to what, what led to you wanting to do what you're doing now? What Kind of walk us through that story. So what happened is I'm going to take you back to 2012, and I was promoted as a patrol sergeant at that time. I was a brand new sergeant. I was on my second solo shift, and the shift started the day after Christmas, 2012. I had minimum staffing. It was a slow night, and hours into the shift, about 3 a.m., a call comes out regarding a female subject in a condo and a man with a knife, and it was that call and what happened during that call, which forever changed my life and changed my path. And it ended up that this male subject was trying to kill a couple inside the condo with a butcher knife. And when my partner, we first arrived on scene and we ended up confronting this male subject at the top of a stairwell and two additional officers ended up coming into the condo. And this male subject was completely unresponsive to our commands. Um, His eyes were wide open. He was sweating profusely. He literally appeared as if he was a zombie and he was staring straight through us. No reaction whatsoever to what we were saying. And as we were trying to give him commands and get him to comply, he suddenly raised the knife in an attacking position and came at us from down the stairs. And there is no nice way to say it, but we had to take his life in order to save lives, not only our own lives, but the couple that was barricaded upstairs in the condo. And it was that incident immediately changed me. I mean, immediately. I remember going home hours and hours after the incident, after going through interviews and being interrogated and and finally going home to my wife at the time and my young daughter. And I instantly felt just numb. I felt detached. 
And that's when I immediately started isolating. I started distancing myself from friends and family. And all I wanted to do was to sleep and just to hope that this was some bad nightmare that was just going to magically disappear when I woke up one day. I started drinking more and self-medicating. And literally, my marriage started falling apart. I mean, everything just started spiraling downwards. And it got to the point, years later, after enduring almost a four-year federal lawsuit, we were sued immediately by the family. And it actually went to trial in San Francisco in 2016. And in my mind, I literally thought once this federal trial was over, that all my problems would disappear. And they didn't. They actually got much, much worse. We prevailed in the trial, but the problem was that during that two weeks, I literally heard these crazy expert witnesses that were hired by the, the plaintiffs. And the accusations that they made, I mean, the theories that they had against myself and my fellow officers, and this nightmare that I couldn't get out of my head for years, I had to relive over and over and over. And being exposed to the, the subject's family. And he had an identical twin brother in the courtroom. I mean, literally the same face that I could not get out of my nightmares was literally feet away from me in this courtroom. And it absolutely took a toll. And it was about a month and a half after that trial ended, my best friend who was a Vietnam veteran, he was also a 35-year reserve police officer, he tried to kill himself when I was on duty. I was the day shift watch commander sergeant. And I remember getting to the trauma center when they brought him in, he was covered in blood. He had stabbed himself in the torso, cut both wrists, OD'd on prescription medications. And I didn't think he was gonna make it, but thank God he did. But about a month after that is when I finally got the courage to raise my hand and ask for help. He saved my life by trying to take his own life. And that is what set me on the path of getting help, of recovering, a path that I'm still on today. But that's why I'm so passionate about this is because there is hope and there is help and I'm living proof of that. And that's what I wanna talk about. That's what I wanna share. I wanna share my mistakes. I wanna share the lessons learned in the hope that people listening to this who are suffering in silence will get the strength and courage to raise their hand and ask for help. Yeah, that's the most important part is that really that that first step getting along the way and getting the help that you need. And, you know, let me just start off with something that I talk about quite a bit with particularly first responders that that I work with and not just first responders. I mean, military folks I work with and, you know, this applies to everybody in the the public as well. But it, it seems with the work that I do that it's mainly first responders and military people that really struggle with this idea of getting help, you know, in AA, um, and we'll, we'll talk about the, the 12 steps, 12 steps in general, and it's not just AA, there's a lot of programs that are out there. But the first step in AA is I'm powerless over alcohol, my life is, has become unmanageable. So that idea of powerlessness, unmanageability, we get the unmanage, unmanageability part that kind of comes easy as far as understanding is concerned. It's the powerlessness part, because you and I both come from a profession where you know, let's face it, power, being saying that you're powerless over something is not something that's celebrated in our line of work. You know, after all, the pe- people come to us for answers. People come to us for help. And that's a requirement of the job. That's something that's important during the job. But if you're an addict or if you're somebody that's struggling with mental health issues, that can be a death sentence. I mean, literally a death sentence. And so I know the people that I work with, and I'll put myself in that category. It took years and years for me to get to the point where I realized I was powerless over what was going on in my life, and I needed to get help. And later, uh, in, in our program, we we have the idea of sharing our experience, strength, and hope, experience, strength, and hope. And a lot of that is sharing the mistakes. So you just mentioned that. You you talked about some of the mistakes that you made early on. Now, maybe address some of those. What, what kind of mistakes? If you could roll the hands of time back, what would you do differently before, uh, leading up to getting help? Well, I'm going to go back to a very critical incident in my story. And that this was after the shooting. Uh, we had what was called a coroner's inquest in my county. And that's a court hearing that takes place anytime that there is a death where law enforcement is present. So that could be 
as simple as somebody hanging themselves in a jail setting. It could be a vehicle pursuit that ends in a fatality or, like in my case, a police shooting. And so I believe it was in August after the shooting. And in this hearing, my wife was there and we were having major difficulties because I had not talked to her about the incident. I hadn't shared what I was going through. Literally, I hadn't talked to anybody. And so I invited her to this hearing. My command staff was there. Most of my investigations bureau. I mean, there was literally probably 70 people in this courtroom, including the suspect's family, uh, full jury. And so I remember going through this hearing and immediately when I heard the dispatch tapes, it brought me back to that night. I remember just goosebumps on the back of my neck. I mean, my blood pressure raising, feeling like I was going to pass out. Well, eventually I get called to the stand and I testify. And as I mentioned again, the family members are just staring at me. This jury is literally just a few feet from me. And I end up breaking down in the courtroom. The first time in my life that I'd ever broken down, not only in a courtroom, but in a room full of like 70 people. And I can't tell you how ashamed and embarrassed that I was that this happened. And I remember the judge, after I was done, he said, thank you, Sergeant. We have what we need. You're excused. And so I left the courtroom for like five minutes to splash water on myself, to get my, my shit together, because I was embarrassed. And I went back to the courtroom. We went through the entire hearing. My officers did outstanding. And about two weeks later, I got called into an admin office. And my lieutenant called me in. I remember walking into the room. The captain was in there, another administrator. And I thought for sure that they were going to give me kudos. I mean, literally – the last shooting before mine in this city was like over 14 years earlier. It just didn't happen at that time in my city. And I was a brand new sergeant. I mean, literally, we saved lives. None of our officers were hurt. We did what we had to do. We even did great in the hearing. We prevailed. But I can immediately tell when I walked in the room, that was not the sense of what was going to happen. It, it was the opposite of that. And it was very serious. And so I sat down sitting straight up, hands on my lap, like as if I was in the military and just sitting there. And I remember this administrators, the first thing they did was they questioned the genuineness of my emotions when I broke down during that court proceeding. Mm. And they, they inferred and both directly said that I had been putting on a show. So they were literally questioning my integrity, questioning everything. And you can't imagine how embarrassed I was, first of all, for breaking down. And now my leadership, who had never questioned my leadership ability, was questioning everything. And this was one of my biggest mistakes because I didn't stick up for myself in that room. I didn't raise my hand and ask for help. I didn't tell them all the things I was going through at home, all the nightmares I was having, the marital problems, the drinking, because they were superior. And I went back to my military days. And if you outranked me, it was yes, sir, no, sir. Whatever you say, I'm going to do it and I'm going to press on. And that's what I did. And I made a conscious decision instead of asking for help like I should have. I said, you know what? I'm going to suck it up. I'm going to get through this. I'm going to get through my probationary status as a sergeant. and I'm going to prove them wrong. And that was a critical, critical moment. I truly believe if I would have stood up for myself and asked for the help that I needed, I would have still be working there today. And I didn't do that. Instead, I suffered for four years, four years, and things got much, much worse, much, much darker to the point where I started purposely putting myself in dangerous situations at work, hoping I died in the line of duty. So what, what finally led to you getting the help that you needed? As I mentioned earlier, when my best friend tried to kill himself, that incident, I can't tell you the guilt that I felt for not seeing the signs, for not realizing that my best friend was suffering to that point. You know, he never talked about his experience in Vietnam. He never talked about all that he went through. He has since. But I felt so guilty for not being there for him, for not helping him. And I saw what that did not only to myself, but to his sister and to his family when I was sitting there at the hospital 
while he was in emergency surgery, wondering if he was going to live or die. And what it came down to was I wasn't going to put my daughter through that. That's all I could think about was how is she going to feel? What is she going to go through? Is she going to blame herself? And that was what shook me out of it. That was what made me ask for help. So walk us through that. So when you say you you asked for help, walk us through that process. What was it? Uh, what, what kind of help did you get? So I remember the day distinctly. It was actually on the anniversary of my shooting. I had been off. I'd asked for a few days off for vacation. I had gone to that gym that day. And that, that's usually my go-to for leaving stress and kind of getting things off my mind. And it, it just didn't work. And I remember after I, I left the gym, I just sat in my car and I broke down and literally bawled for like two hours. And I just realized like, I can't do this anymore. I can't keep this up. And so I picked up my cell phone and I called the on-duty watch commander in my department. And I told him, I said, look, I need help. And thank God, he, he was amazing. He, he talked to me for a very long time and he said, look, I'm gonna, I'm gonna call the chief, I'm gonna call the captain, I'm gonna make the notifications. I'm going to get you the help that you need. And he started the ball rolling. And I remember I immediately got linked with our department therapist. And I, I talked to her right after I called the watch commander. And unfortunately, she wasn't able to see me in person right away because this is right after Christmas. But we had several phone appointments, and I had an appointment to see her on January 3rd. And so I started seeing her. And I just said, look, I needed to put everything into my recovery. I need to go all in. I can't half-ass this. I can't keep working and work on my recovery. I had waited far too long. Mm -hmm. And so she then got me transitioned into another therapist who was very culturally competent. And I remember the first day that I met with her, she told me a very personal, dark story of a very traumatic incident that she had been through. And when she told me that story, it immediately built trust. I immediately understood that very moment that she got it. She didn't get it because she just studied it in some book. She actually lived it and came out the other side. And now she's devoted her life to giving back and helping first responders. Mm. So that, that was just absolutely critical. And I remember on our first meeting, Right before leaving her office, she told me about these first responder support meetings, and I had never heard of these. And it turns out they have them all over the United States. They have them all over the Bay Area where I live, and they're hour-long discussion meetings. Um, some are in the 12-step format, as you mentioned, and some are just purely discussion meetings. The caveat is that these are open to all first responders, whether you're active, you're retired, you're off on injury. They're 100% confidential. They're not associated with any agency. They're held at off-site facilities. In my case, it was held in like a church conference room. And I remember I called up the guy that ran the meeting. I'm still friends with him today. He's an active police lieutenant here in the Bay Area. And he, he told me what the meetings were about. He told me what to expect. And so I showed up a little bit early and I just sat in that parking lot and I saw some cars pull up and I was, I was so anxious and so nervous. I, I didn't know what to expect and I, I really didn't want to go in there, but I had committed to it. And so I, I eventually walked in at the very last minute and I just sat there and everybody introduced themselves by, by first name. You know, we went through the 12 steps. We did the serenity prayer. And then this is when the powerful part started. And that's when, the discussion started. And that's where I saw first responders, dispatchers, paramedics, firefighters, police officers that were sharing very deep, dark, personal stories and struggles that they had gone through or were going through. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, this literally was the first time in my military and law enforcement career that I'd seen anything like this take place. And so for the first few meetings, I just sat there and listened. But eventually, I got the strength to start sharing. And that was so very powerful and so healing to know that I wasn't alone. And that's the key of this whole thing, is people knowing that you're not alone. And there's people out there who get it. They're not going to judge you. And they're going to help you get through it. 
That's that's so true. And I think that whether it's addiction, whether it's post-traumatic stress injury, whether it's uh, mental health issues, we often think that we're the only ones going through what we're going through. And probably the fellowship is which, what we call it, that, that coming together of people that have similar stories, similar things that they're, they're experiencing. There's just something about, you know, that's what lifts that weight off of your shoulders is when you realize that you're not alone and that there are other people that are going through that. And then being able to help others. And let me ask you about this. Are you finding that uh, what is helping you quite a bit now is not only you being helped yourself, but the ability to help others? Because obviously you're doing that in writing the book and in the speaking that you do and in the working and the volunteering that you're doing. You know, how, how much of that uh, is, you know, for your benefit and, and for others? Or how does that, what's that interplay like with you? It is so critical to my recovery, to my path. I mean, I have now dedicated my life to helping others. And, and like you said, it not only helps them, but it helps yourself in return. I know that every time I go back to the West Coast post-trauma retreat and I go for a week at a time and I, and I sit there, I remember how I was when I first walked through those doors in May of 2017. And I, now I see how far I've come. And that's the key is because sometimes we lose sight of just how far we've come of the progress we've made. And and by going back and giving back, you know, not only does it refresh and remind us of the fundamentals, the things that we need to to focus on and we need to work on, because let's be honest, a lot of this stuff is perishable. And if you're not consistent and you don't stay at it, you can easily fall back into the way you were before recovery. And so Helping others is absolutely critical to staying on my own path of recovery. Mm-hmm. It is. And that's why, you know, in, in my world, when people say, you know, all these years later, why are you still going to meetings? Why do you need to do that? Well, a couple of reasons. One, you just addressed, and that is that you can slip back. You can always forget how far that you've come. And I think, like, where I am in my recovery, the danger is forgetting why you you came here in the first place why why we got to that place it's easy to forget that and that's a very dangerous thing to do the other thing the other reason why we continue to go to meetings is even though i may not absolutely need to go to a meeting every single day meaning i'm not at risk of relapse just because i missed a day or two of meetings what's important is that the new people the people that are struggling the people that just came into the program the people that are still in that acute phase of their hurting they need to see you there they need you know you're you're going to meetings now for others not necessarily for yourself although you do benefit but if there's no people if, pe- if people don't go to meetings and show how it's done and talk about how they got well, then how do people know how to get well? That's that, that's why I think we continue to go to meetings, even years later. Uh, absolutely. And what you just said is the very reason why I decided to open up. You know, I, I eventually opened up to that therapist, but I had never opened up to anybody else. And And that power that you mentioned was me being at those first responder support meetings and seeing my fellow peers who were proving that you could recover and that it does take work and it does take everything you have sometimes, but it's possible. And that's the key is making it a reality for people, letting them see it for themselves. Mm -hmm. Because if they don't, they have to, you have to have it demonstrated to you. How do you do this? You know, if I was in a room full of people that were in their first day of recovery, I I wouldn't see recovery and the promises of the recovery and the results of recovery. You have to see it in other people. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. So when this happened in you, your department, um, what was the reception after that? How, so, so you got into treatment and you're, you're working with a therapist, uh, kind of walk us from there. What happened? So initially the support from my department was outstanding. I mean, I have to give them credit. Hmm. They provided the resources. They gave me the time off. They allowed me to go to the West coast post-trauma retreat. But literally about five and a half months into my recovery, after I'd gone to the retreat, that's when administrative betrayal started. And I don't 
mention this or talk about this to talk bad about my agency because my agency is outstanding and there's outstanding people there to this day and they have all my respect. But the reason why I mention this is because so many first responders deal with administrative betrayal. Yeah. And what it came down to was that my whole goal and purpose was to get better. My whole goal and purpose was to go back to work and to be a police officer. I mean, that's all I knew. That's all I ever wanted to do my whole life. And I was on that path. Like you mentioned, I was going to therapy. I was going to meetings. I'd gone to the retreat. I was taking medication. I mean, literally, I was doing everything I could do, and I was making progress. But it wasn't fast enough, according to my admin. And what it came down to was my administration, one particular person, it wasn't the whole agency, but they started trying to talk me into retirement. I mean, literally months into my recovery. And and I can't tell you what that felt like to, to basically hear your leadership tell you that, hey, you know what? Maybe you should consider hanging it up, calling it a career. When my, my whole, I had a plan. I mean, I wanted to be chief of police someday. You know, I, my career was off the charts up to this point. And now you're telling me, you know, 14 years in that I should hang it up. I should call it quits. When this is all I know, this is all I wanted to do. Mm. That is betrayal. Absolute betrayal. And, and, well, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, to this day, you know, that's something that I have to work on. I have to work on getting over that betrayal, getting over that anger. Because this was my heart. This was my everything. And we, we as first responders in the military, we think of our organizations as family. But this is where I realized that the organization is not family. It's a business. And they want you back healthy. They want you working. And if you're off on injury, then you're taking up a spot. You're not on the streets. And they either want you on the books fully recovered and working, but they don't want you on the books injured. They want you off the books so they can replace you. And that was the hardest thing to realize is that all the things I did for those 14 years, it didn't matter. It didn't matter anymore. They just wanted somebody working the streets. Yeah, it's it's funny that you say that because I do a lot of post-critical incident seminar work um, now. I, I go and I talk about, uh, you know, I, I've mentioned on this podcast before, I'm, I'm a part of Ohio Assist uh, with, you know, state of Ohio working with first responders. And when, you know, we will typically have about 30 first responders per session. We do about four times a year. And the first day we'll go around the room and we'll ask people about the incidents that they were involved in that brought them to the PCIS. And what's interesting, something I've noticed over the years, is not a whole lot of time, believe it or not, is spent on the incident that brought them to the PCIS. The bulk of the time is spent talking about how their agency treated them post-incident. And I have found that fascinating because whether you're a firefighter, EMT, uh, a police officer, a federal agent, military member, whatever the case may be, you're taught in those organizations from day one that your organization is family, that it's a community, that we've got your back. And and I hate to say this, and I've, and I've been in a number of organizations and, and retired from the FBI, and this is not meant to be a slight on the FBI or any other organization I was in, but here's what I've learned over the years. You're really not family. You're, you're really, it may be a family, but it's a highly dysfunctional family. I can, I can tell you that. And it's just the way it is. Like you mentioned, at the end of the day, it's a business. It's not a family. And when you leave, you know, people, I, if I went back to the FBI today and into my old office, half the people, over half the people wouldn't even know who I was. I mean, can we be honest about that? And the problem when it comes to people that are struggling is if that's who you are depending on to get well, then you're not going to go very far. You're probably not. And it's not because these are bad people. It's not because they mean you any harm, because I don't think they do. It's just an organization that has a mission. And when you need to get well, there might be individuals that will help you, but the organization is not in the business of, of helping you. It's, it's really not at the end of the day. That's why it's important, I believe, for you to really take the initiative yourself and go out and seek the help that you need, because there are people that will will help you. You just have to find the right people. Would you agree with that, or did you have a different experience than me? No, I, I agree with you 
And it's, it's a reality that everyone needs to be aware of. Like you said, unfortunately, it is not family. And there are going to be some people that are going to help you. But at the end of the day, it's up to yourself to get that help. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not easy to do. I mean, I, I look back now and it was the toughest thing I've ever done. It took more courage than any incident I'd ever been involved in, whether it be in the military or civilian law enforcement. And that's the key is that, you know, we don't talk about this stuff. We don't make it normal. And that's the culture that we need to change. We need to make it acceptable to talk about these things because we do such a great job. And you know this from your many years in the FBI. We put up such a good front on the outside Mm -hmm. that there's nothing wrong. We're squared away and we're handling business. But yet on the inside, we're literally falling apart and nobody knows about it. So we do such a good job at hiding it. And then oftentimes, like you pointed out, when you finally do reach out to get help, you would like to think that everybody in your world is going to come alongside you and get on, you know, Team Mike, you know, you and I both being Mike, you know, Team Mike, to get well. And some people do that, and some people may do that for a period of time, but not everybody does. And, you know, you you do have to realize that there are going to be people that – may not look at this, you know, in the right way. They might look at it as, hey, you're not pulling your weight or, you know, what's wrong with you? That may happen. But I think, like I know in my own case, I had to outweigh the good and the bad and realize that more people were on my side than not. And long-term, what was important was that I get well. That's what's important because if you're in law, if you're in, if you're a first responder right now and you're listening to this podcast, I, I cannot emphasize this enough. And I used to hear this a lot when I was a young police officer, a young military officer, and a young FBI agent. That hey, you know, this is just temporary. It's you know, you didn't come into the world as an FBI agent. You're not going to go out of the world as, as an FBI agent. And you are hopefully going to spend as much time not in the FBI in retirement as you did in the FBI. And so whatever's going on right now is not the entire universe. What what is important is your long-term health, both physically and mentally, and you've got to take care of yourself. And if there are people that don't get that along the way when you're when you're on the job, then they don't get it. But you need to move past that because what is important is in the long run, in, into retirement, you want to be healthy and whole and you want your family to be healthy and whole. And if people don't get that, then, then they're not part of that process. But don't spend a lot of time worrying about them. Stay focused on getting well and surrounding yourself around the people that do get it because there are people there. But this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. And if you're not well going into retirement, then it's, you're not going to last real long. Um, you're not going to last long in retirement if you don't, if, if the same uh, addictions and, and mental health issues and things that you had on the job are not dealt with, I have an old saying, or I heard somebody say this one time, if you don't deal with those issues, they will deal with you. What are your thoughts on that? Well, let's be honest. I mean, the the chances of a first responder dying in the line of duty versus dying by suicide, they're much more likely to die yeah. by suicide. I mean, that's that's the sad reality. This year alone, so we're almost at the end of 2021, and we're in December. We have 149 reported law enforcement suicides. You know, last year we had 176 and the year before that we had 239. And and the facts are these numbers as high as they are, they're still greatly underreported. The real numbers are much much higher. Mm. I mean, that's the reality of it. You know, we're, we're trained and we think about, well, what are we going to do if we have to go into an active shooter situation or what if we have to go into a domestic violence situation? or a huge bar brawl. Like we train for these things. We expect them, but we don't train to talk about suicide. And that's the number one killer of police officers. And the sad reality is that many officers kill themselves after they retire. Yeah. Because that's when they actually stop. They're not operational and they start thinking about things and they start realizing the effects of the job and 30 years of traumatic incidents. I mean, literally hundreds of traumatic incidents and the toll that it has if you don't address it. And so that's why we need to make suicide prevention a number one priority for our military, but also for all first responders. Mm-hmm. 
And there's not enough of that. I know when I went through the academy, both in the police department and uh, in the FBI, this was not a topic that we discussed. It was not discussed at all. And it's not discussed. Uh, no, and I it, that's that's something that needs to change. And if you are an administrator out there in a police agency, I, I get it. I, I worked in the training realm, you know, in the FBI. I taught at the FBI Academy, and I saw what goes into the curriculum. I saw what goes into the training, and and I'm, I was at all the meetings where you know, particularly with the new agents, you know, every unit in the FBI wants their time with the new agents because you know whatever it is that they do in the FBI is important and. And there needs to be a block of instruction in it. And so when you're the one that's developing the curriculum and you have everybody in the FBI wanting to have a piece of the new agents, uh, you know, the, the, the new agents are only in training for, you know, X number of weeks. And you they only have so many hours in the day. And everybody thinks that what they what they do is important and it needs to be, in, uh, you know, part of the curriculum. I, so I get that. I understand the difficulty. I understand the challenges. But what I'm telling you, if you are somebody that is part of that curriculum building team, that this is very important. It needs to be on the front end of training before the job starts. I didn't get well in towards the latter part of my career. And I, in the latter part of my career, I was hearing concepts and things that were life-saving. But frankly, looking back on it, those are things I should have heard in the front end of my career, not in the not at the end of my career. Um, so this is something that needs to be prioritized. And so I agree with you on that. Absolutely. And like, take for example, here in California, when I went through the police academy, we had about 880 hours of instruction. And these are, you know, California Post mandates, requirements. And my thoughts are this. How difficult would it be to add one, maybe two hours max, where you bring in somebody into the academies, like myself, people that are still working, but who are open and honest, and they share their personal experiences of the toll of the job. And then you carry that on that type of training throughout their careers. But think of how powerful that would be to these, you know, academy people who are getting ready to graduate and become sworn officers to get a glimpse into the reality of the job. I mean, mm-hmm. literally, we're talking about one or two hours. How many lives would that save, do you think? Uh, you know, it's hard to tell because I think it would be a lot because I agree with you. You mentioned earlier that the numbers, the suicide numbers as high as they are, I actually think they're higher than that. I really do. Because I think that there are a lot of suicides that are not listed as suicides out there. But I think it would be a lot. I really do. And, and, and they are. I, I can't tell you. I got a message today and I got a message yesterday from officers across the U.S. who told me about a suicide. And so I went to their social media pages, and I'm not going to say the agency name for obvious reasons. And you often hear sergeant or officer so-and-so passed away suddenly. Mm-hmm. And, and that's how it's put out on social media. Nobody talks about this stuff. It's not out there. No. I mean, some agencies are getting better about it. you know. But the other sad thing is that usually when there's a suicide in the agency, there's more. Yeah. There's, there's more to follow. And, and that's the thing is we have to be better about reporting this, about talking about it, because it's a reality. And, and I agree with you. The numbers are greatly underreported. The real numbers are much, much higher. Oh, I will tell you, just for the FBI, the FBI doesn't tell the public about suicides that occur, but they do occur. I can tell you for a fact they do. But that's not something you're going to read about in the paper. Think about it. Have you ever read about a suicide in the FBI? Never. Never, right? Uh, how long has the FBI been around? Uh, I can That's tell you for a fact, time. it happens It happens every year, and it's never reported. So there, just take that that one agency right there that is not reporting it to the public. So you already know that the numbers that you are aware of and I'm aware of are low. We know that. And that's just Absolutely. the one That's just one agency. That's just the FBI. You know, I could go to the Secret Service, the DEA, ATF, uh, you know, Postal Inspection Service, you know, all of those, uh, NCIS. They're not reporting this stuff to the public. Um, you know, so it is grossly underreported, grossly underreported. Now, um, you, you take all of the trauma that you and I have been discussing up until this point and then throw on top of the fact that we now have a profession that is under absolute attack by the public because of the events of the last, you know, two, three years. And it makes it even worse, doesn't it? 
Absolutely. And, you know, especially here in California, we have some very progressive DAs who are anti-cop and they're literally pro-criminal. And imagine being a police officer now with no support from your chief, from the DA, you know, from the sheriff, from the city council, and not from the public. I mean, literally, you have no support from anybody. Hey, and that is a recipe for disaster. I mean, absolute recipe for disaster. So if you're a first responder, think- not only are you facing the trauma on the street, and then you and I talked about the trauma that occurs inside the organization, which is almost never talked about, but now we have that third prong, and that is the public. Now the public has turned on you. And so if if you're not in first respond if you're not a first responder and you're listening to this, imagine if whatever job you're in that <laughs> all you did was face trauma all day long, then you got no support from your agency, and then the general public has turned on you. Imagine what your world would be like. Uh, absolutely. And I know literally right now officers with good shoots that saved lives that are being prosecuted by DAs. I mean, imagine that you put your life on the line, save lives, and now you're facing losing everything and being put away in prison for the rest of your life. It's a, this is a tough, tough time. It really is. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, Mike, that's why we need to talk about this because it is a tough time and we need to bring this out and we need to talk about it and we need to talk about it some more. We do, we do, and you're doing a lot of work. So not only are you public speaking and you're doing training, but uh, you have a book coming out, don't you? I do, I do. Tell us a little bit about Very, that. What was the genesis of it? And um, it's getting ready to come out uh, real soon. So tell our audience about your book. So I have to give a huge shout out and kudos to Dr. Shauna Springer. She's a very well-known psychologist. She's worked with combat veterans most of her career, first responders. She's already written three books. And we connected a couple years ago, and we had some discussions. And during a discussion, she actually asked, like, hey, have you ever thought about writing a book? And my response then was, like, look, you know what? I'm so burnt out after years, years of report writing. I just don't think I have it in me to write a book. And so we kind of left it at that. And I, I, I just always wondered after that, like, you know, this is something that needs to be shared. It needs to be talked about. And so – about a year and a half ago, we had another conversation, and she's like, how about we write this book together? And I just – I can't tell you how I felt that day. I mean, literally, it was like the skies opened and everything aligned, and that's when it started. And the concept of the book is is absolutely amazing. So it's, it's called Relentless Courage, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. There's 14 chapters. It goes all the way back to my childhood. And so the format of the book is that every chapter, about 70% of it is my story and my voice. And the second part of every chapter is Dr. Shauna Springer's insights, explanations, observations, but in a global sense, so that anybody reading this book, whether you're a veteran, first responder, or whether you're just somebody on the street that knows nothing about being in the military or nothing about being a first responder, that you're going to understand it. You're going to get it. You're going to see the human side of the badge. You're going to see what we go through and you're going to see the effect on it because we're human just like you. And this book is going to be so powerful for the family members of our veterans and our first responders. And I have no doubt that this book is going to absolutely save lives. Well, that's really, that's really exciting. Now I understand it's coming out in a week. Is that right? No, no. We actually just finished writing the book a week ago. Okay. And so the book is written and we're starting to do the editing now and the formatting, and the publishing. So we're still a few months out from release. Um, I'm definitely going to be posting updates on LinkedIn and all my social media channels on the book release dates and the pre-orders. But again, we're still a few months out before it hits the streets. Now, is this something that's going to be on Amazon and a book? How would, how would the listeners get a copy of this if they wanted to? It's absolutely going to be on Amazon, 100%. So um, once we get the dates dialed in, we're going to have pre-order information for Amazon. Okay. It is going to be available on there. And we're also hoping down the road to do an audible version, uh, hopefully in both our own voices um, for the two separate parts of the book. But initially, it's going to be hard copy. 
and absolutely will be available on Amazon. Oh, and I'll definitely update you as well when it comes out. That's fantastic. And now, and you, you, you do a lot of public speaking as well. So if the listeners wanted to book you, um, how would they do that? And, and give us kind of an idea of what to expect if you were to come out and speak to an agency or, or a group. It doesn't have to be an agency. It could be anybody, really. So the easiest thing to do is just to send me a message on LinkedIn or on Facebook. I have a page. It's called Sergeant Michael Segru. So you send me a, a message on either one of those pages, and basically we have a phone call. And we talk about the conference or the training that you need. Um, lately, I've been doing a lot of national conferences. I've got two that are coming up early in the spring, uh, one in Illinois and one in Northern California. And typically, if it's like a keynote address or a speech, I'll do usually about two hours. Uh, but it can be longer, it can be shorter. And it's just, you know, it's, it's very easy. Like I said, just send me a message and we can make it happen. Oh, that's fantastic. And now also, tell us about some of the groups that you're working with. You're, you're doing some peer counseling as well, correct? So I'm a peer volunteer for the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. That's based out here in California. That's where it was founded, but it's actually branched out. And now there's locations all over the United States. And that is part of the First Responder Support Network. If you just Google First Responder Support Network, you'll see a link for the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. And it's basically a week-long retreat that is open to any first responder. Again, whether you're active, you're retired, you're off on injury. And so I go back there at least a couple times a year, a week at a time, and I volunteer there. The other program is called Save a Warrior. I went through there as a client about a year and a half ago. And this program is absolutely amazing. The difference between the two programs is that Save a Warrior is also open to active military to veterans, as well as first responders. And Save a Warrior focuses on complex PTS or the childhood trauma, uh, something that we didn't really get a chance to talk about. But the facts are is that the vast majority of first responders, they have some form of childhood trauma. Again, mm. it can be very, very minor. It can be very benign in some senses, like an emotionally distant parent. But it can also be very severe on the other end of the spectrum, like child abuse, sexual molestation. But, you know, we, we become caretakers and we overcome adversity at a young age. And it makes us very good at first responders. And we seek out these professions in helping other people. And so we really need to address not only the childhood trauma, but the work-related trauma because they compound on one another. And the beauty of Save a Warrior, again, almost a week-long retreat, is this program is free. There is no cost to attend Save a Warrior. It's all funded by donations. And all you have to do is Google Save a Warrior. It takes five minutes to apply online. And what they do is they schedule a rostering phone call where somebody calls you from the program. And during that one discussion, they determine whether the program's right for you. That's it. It's that simple. And then you get a date to go. And it is absolutely life-saving. So they fly you out and put you up... Uh in accommodations and in food and everything, or how does that work? So you have to physically get yourself to one of two locations. The main location is based in Ohio and they're building a brand new multi-million dollar complex so they can actually have more people. The other location is in Simi Valley in Southern California. So you do have to get yourself there, but once you're there, all the housing, the food, the program, everything is provided. There's no cost. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And, you know, Mike, maybe just kind of take us out with some last words, last words of advice, uh, any information that you want to, you know, anything I didn't ask you about that you want our listeners to, to know about. You know, the only thing I want them to know is that I, I suffered for four years. It almost cost my life. And I know there's people out there listening to this interview right now who are absolutely suffering in silence. You feel like your world is falling apart. You feel like nobody understands you. Nobody gets it. There's no help available. That's not true. I'm living proof that if you raise your hand and you ask for help, you'll get through it. It's going to take work. It's going to take time and perseverance. But I'm telling you right now, there's a whole new life on the other side. My life today is better than it ever has been. So please don't suffer in silence. Just raise your hand and ask for help. 
Oh, well, that's fantastic. Mike, I really appreciate you coming on the program today. You know, uh, really, just thank you so much. And folks, the, the book is going to be Relentless Courage, uh, Winning the Battle Against Frontline Trauma. And again, the, the name is Michael Sugru, S-U-G-R-U-E. Please reach out to him on LinkedIn. And uh, a lot of the, now I know you have a number of Facebook uh, uh, different sites, don't you? Do you want to plug some of those? I do. The main one is called First Responders First, and I have an Instagram also with the same name. On that page, I'm always putting up articles, information related to suicide prevention, PTSI, um, for all first responders. And so there's just a wealth of resources and knowledge that's on that page. So just remember, First Responders First. And the other page is my Sergeant Michael Segru page. Definitely check those out. Well, that's fantastic. And again, thanks again, Mike, for coming on the show. I, that, a lot of really good information there, and I know you're going to be helping a lot of people who are listening to this podcast. So thanks again. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and folks, this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. According to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. So FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. Find out more at FHEHealth.com. And folks, check out my Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and also my website, which is VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com, VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com. And once again, folks, we talk. I talk about a lot of different programs on here. I know I mentioned AA, I mentioned 12 Steps, I mentioned other programs, you know, Al-Anon and others, but I don't represent those groups or anyone else. I just represent myself. I pre- present this information to help you because it's helped me and maybe it will help you and others. And if there's anything that you don't agree with, just discard it. But if there's anything that you can take away from what we talked about then that will help you or others, then please do so because that's what we're here to do. We're here to help people the way we've been helped along the way. So with that, folks, once again, check out my Facebook page, Recovery is Possible, or VanMeterWellnessSolutions.com, and I look forward to talking again with you soon. Take care.